I acknowledge that the land I work, live, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Execute episode 66 of Vanex Van. I'm your host, Doug Vandalay, and I'm joined today by screenwriter, freelance writer, and teacher at Vancouver Film School, Rudy Thalberger. How's it going, Rudy? Oh, good, good. How's it going with you? Yeah, it's, it's going well, thanks. Um, so, I was browsing your IMDb, uh, doing yeah. some research for today's episode, <laughs> yes. and it looks like you've written a fair few apocalypse films. Uh, yeah, it was sort of a, it was a thing I sort of fell into. Uh, it was interesting. It was, I mean, they're terrible, but uh, it, they were fun to do. I mean, it it, it was like this, like uh, a friend of mine, you know, a former student actually was working for a production company that uh, did these films. And, uh, you know, we had lunch one day and he basically said, you know, if I ever need a writer in an emergency, can I call you? And I mean, I knew what these things were and I was like, well, I got no pride. I'll do it. And uh, so he... He phones me one day, and they needed a complete rewrite of a script. Like, they were two weeks away from uh, production, and we had to sort of basically gut the script and, and rewrite it and, you know, like basically write it, rewriting a feature in a week and a half. And uh, that's basically what we did. And and the thing is, uh, and then from there I started getting hired fairly regularly, and then, uh, like, in fact, <laughs> there's one on that list called Snowmageddon. And uh, before Sharknado came along... It was the number one most popular sci-fi MOW. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And the the second most popular one uh, was the Twelve Disasters of Christmas, which is another one I wrote. So, it was <laughs> interesting for a while. And then Snowmageddon came along, or not? Uh, sorry, then Sharknado came along and just destroyed the industry. Yeah. Um, it, you know, even though it was the most popular one, uh, it kind of destroyed everything. It was. It's a weird. Um, like there was a battle going on within sci-fi. Um, between so, so with that sort of like deliberate B movie kind of yeah 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 that sort of deliberate B movie thing because those things would get high ratings right yeah um, and they're like they're deliberately cheesy in, in a way and and you know they're they're made so fast right I mean I you know I'd come in on a project and they would have the basic idea like I never came up with the ideas and they would have the basic idea and then they'd come to me and they you know we'd start to lay out the plot and it was like writing a feature in about three weeks. Oh, jeez. And we'd actually do four drafts of it in the three weeks, uh, which sounds insane, but, I mean, you know, essentially, uh, you know, my friend uh, Dave, who's the guy who hired me, um, so I would write an act at a time, like there's eight acts, and I would write an act at a time and, and send it in, and then he would rewrite behind me. So we'd actually get a, a rewritten thing in, you know, and you did an act a day. Because you you know you had to. So you're writing Act Two while he's yeah, rewriting I'm writing Act, act Two one. while he's write, rewriting Act One. So by the end of it, we get a fully rewritten uh, piece, and then uh, we'd get a bunch of notes. And the notes, I mean, that's one of the things that was so weird about this whole thing. Because uh, like I worked for a production company in Vancouver, that worked for a production company in LA, that worked for Sci-Fi, and we would get notes from all three layers of this. And, yeah. and some of those notes would be contradictory, and you weren't allowed to say they were contradictory. So then you just had to try to implement these crazy notes, and then you had to rewrite it again. So we'd do the same procedure again. You know, I'd rewrite one act a, a day, and then he would rewrite behind me. So by the end of, like, you know, 
roughly three weeks, uh, we'd have a fourth draft. And then at that point, I'd be done. And then it would get rewritten a whole bunch more times. Um, so that sometimes it was like almost unrecognizable from what I wrote. And then they'd shoot it in about nine days. Nine days. Nine days. Which is, again, it's insane. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why these things are so bad. Um, and, you know, one of the things I, I, that surprised me when I started doing this is that no one involved in the process that I met was cynical about it or was, you know, cavalier about it. They were all trying really hard to make the best thing they could possibly make. Uh, they weren't deliberately trying to make something bad. Uh, they were all well-motivated. It's just nobody had the time and nobody had the money. Right. Right. Like you had, for these things, you had, you know, you're destroying the world. Like you're doing a disaster movie. You're destroying the world. And you had maybe a million dollars to do it with. And they kept cutting that budget. You know, so by the end, I think it was about 900000 even like less than that. And they still wanted you to destroy the world. Yeah. Like, so you had to have these epic, massive things. And then it would be like, well, here's, you know, pocket change to make it. Just bring a camera over to Newfoundland well, yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's kind of like that. Too. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, uh, yeah, one of the things like that happened, like on the 12 disasters of Christmas, we only actually show seven disasters because that's all we could afford to do. So we would just talk about the other five. Uh, and one of the disasters we talked about was just there was no snow. It was just right. really a disaster. <laughs> it's just the problem is, you know, you know, they'd film out, you know, uh, you know Maple Ridge and beyond that and into the interior. And the snow just kept, you know, disappearing earlier and earlier. So we kept running out of snow. So, you know, if they'd had a small town they're going to film and they'd expect snow and there was no snow there. And it's a Christmas movie. you got to have snow. So we would talk about this great disaster. There's no snow. Um, but it was, it, you know, again, very strange process. Um, and, you know, you, you had no time for nuance. You had no time for subtlety. Uh, you try to put a joke in there, they would just cut it, right? Or... Even worse, sometimes the joke would get in, but nobody would play it as if as it was a, a joke. joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give me, but you're bringing back a bunch of memories now. Uh, there was one point at which I think it was when Twelve Disasters came out, because uh, the these were very programmed structures, right? So you had an eight act structure. At the end of Act Three, you had to deliver all the exposition, all of it for the movie. They had to know everything you need to know. And you had to do it at the end of Act 3. And these were complicated, overcomplicated expositions. Like I said, we didn't come up with the stories. They, they were handed, the basic plots were handed to us. These are the things you got to put in here. And they were ridiculously overcomplicated. And you had to deliver it all in one scene at the end of the third act. So these scenes... Oh, so you, you're not even leading up to it? No. Nope. You're just waiting, end of Act 3, yep. here's all the exposition. Here's all the exposition. I mean, you've got little bits and pieces you can put in there. But the whole what's behind everything, what's destroying the world, what's the big secret... Uh, and they're so it's a real formulaic process. Yeah, super formulaic. And uh, and like the end of Act 3, like, like 12 Disasters was basically about, you know, the 12 Days of Christmas Christmas Carol was actually a secret Mayan prophecy about the end of the world. Well, you know, try explaining that you know, in one chunk. And so we had to do it at the end of the third act. And then you have to kind of repeat it again at the end of the beginning of the fourth act because they'd they'd realize that's when most people join in, you know, because the biggest, the second biggest thing other than the climax happens at the end of the third act, like the biggest money shot disaster. Yeah. And so then people start to tune in. Oh, look, uh, something got blown up. I'm going to watch this. 
And so you had to kind of... They're trying to catch the eyes that are flicking through the channels. Yeah, exactly. And and then at the beginning of the fourth act, you got to restate the exposition. And these were just horrible to write. I mean, exposition's super hard to write to start. And uh, so we do these. And, you know, that's when you usually would hire, like, the best actor in the movie. Some, you know... You know, some, you know, uh, character actor who's been acting for like 30 years. You give him a big paycheck. He goes, he works for two days. He kills his character off and he's gone. Right. And so that's what you get to deliver it. But it was, it was just this nightmare. And so with 12 Disasters, we had to do the thing, you know, the crusty bookshop owner or whatever it was. And uh, it was also the sci-fi's 2012 movie, right, because about the Mayan prophecy. Yeah. Right. So they wanted to at least acknowledge that other Mayan prophecy movies had come out, right? Because, you know, the big movie 2012 had come out and everything like that, and we were literally coming out of Christmas, so, I mean, like a month before Christmas. So, you know, so I put a line in there where they're talking to the guy, and, he's, and you know, the guy's like, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, is this one of those 2012 things? And the guy says, no, this is the 2012 thing. <laughs> and this is like, this is the smallest possible joke, right? It's not even a, it's barely a joke. It's joke-like. Yeah. You know, but I thought, well, I'll just put it in there. You know, and I italicized the word the so they get it and uh and then it came out and a friend of mine like you know texted me and said dude they're 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 talking about your 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 movie on the soup you know that joel McHale show the soup oh right and i'm like oh that's not a good thing <laughs> you know <laughs> they, they don't compliment people on that I show mean, any publicity though right i guess but <laughs> i was like all right so i dig up the episode and i'm looking at it and they show that scene <clears throat> and this is the first time i've seen it Right, I'd never actually seen it, and they the scene plays, and the guy's talking, and the guy says, "Is this one of those 2012 things?" So I'm already worried. They're already saying, not, you know, they don't say 2012, which is yeah. faster. They say 2012, <clears throat> and the guy, the actor who's delivering the exposition, says, "No, this is the 2012 thing." He doesn't say the at all. So he even though this is right over just, it, yeah, and so even though it's the tiniest, it's barely a joke. They blew that. And Joel McHale made fun of that the entire episode of the soup. Could they but, tell that it was supposed to be delivered in a certain way? I on the soup. I, well, I don't. I think they just thought it was hilarious that this nonsensical idiot line. Like, why would they repeat that line? And so they just did a, a riff on that. It was a hilarious riff on that for the rest of the episode. But it was, <laughs> yeah. But that's the kind of thing they were filming it so fast. They yeah. just ran right over it. You know get it one take of it and then boom we're done and like get out of here you know so you know you try to get some stuff in there and you know, sometimes it works and most of the time it doesn't yeah because there's no sort of subtlety with the whole thing but uh you know occasionally i mean they're they're entertaining <clears throat> people it's one of those things people love to hate them yeah you know like when another one aired a friend of mine said you know it's trending on twitter it's trending on twitter your movie's trending on twitter so once again well it's not a good thing but it was fun to go on Twitter, and they were just lambasting it. And they were being really funny. I really liked it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But you go through the whole thread, right? And they're like, this is stupid. This is logical, blah, 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 blah. And you get to the end of it, though, and they're like, that was great. I can't wait for the next one. You know, so... It was, yeah, you love to hate it. Yeah, you love to hate it. <laughs> and, you know, so even though we weren't deliberately making something you love to hate... It wasn't that bad to actually have that. Like, I didn't feel bad about that, you know, because I knew everyone involved tried to make the best movie they could make, and, you know, that's how it worked. But, 
you know, and, you know, I've watched those and I love to hate them. So, you know, I do the same thing. But now I can see when people are making fun of something, you know, like, you know, when my friends are like, why would they do that? Why would they do that? And it's like, well, I know exactly why they did it because they couldn't afford to have any of those actors and that's why they killed them off or they had to do them all as extras because they couldn't afford any speaking roles. Like, I know all the technical stuff behind it. I know all the limitations behind it. It's still dumb. You know, like, yeah. when you see it, it's still dumb and you can't make an excuse for something that's bad. It's just, you can't say, well, we couldn't do that. It doesn't matter because it's out there. Just, it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, they there was fun stuff in there. And I imagine it's pretty good training for everyone involved as well. It's, it really is. kind of parameters. It really is. You, you learn to produce to deadline. Like, you have no choice. You know, like, I'm doing an act a day. It does not matter what's going on right yeah. it doesn't matter what's happening in my life it doesn't matter i gotta put an act a day out and you know my friend has to rewrite that behind me and the next day i gotta do the next act and i don't have time to sort of like well i wish i could fix that scene more because you know it's five o'clock and the act is going out it's like a trial by fire of yeah. kill your darlings right? well it is it yeah. is and you do learn about you know even though those exposition scenes were were terrible you do learn about exposition which is one of the hardest things to write you know, like my friend and I used to pull out um, the exposition section of uh, The Fifth Element. It's, it's beautiful. Like, I always like, you know, I like the movie. Yeah. But if you look at the exposition on that, it's like 30 seconds. It's great. I can't even think of well, when it happens. Yeah, what is the scene? Well, it's when it's, it's uh, you know, when the, when the priest comes in to see the president. And you know a bit of stuff that's going on. And he pulls out the book, the Book of Prophecy. And there's all the four elements on it, and then there's the fifth element in the center, and he's just pointing out things. You know, I'm thinking of Total Recall. I always get them confused yeah. in my yeah. head. I, they fill a, a similar memory niche yeah. for me. <laughs> well, the, the exposition in Total Recall is pretty good, too. Like, you know, those big blockbusters. Just get your ass to Mars. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, they know how to do it really efficiently. And, you know, again, it's one of those things I've come to appreciate more. Uh, you know, as I've worked on these things, it's like, yeah, exposition is really hard and people who can do it well, you know, the fact that you can't remember the exposition scene is actually a good thing. Yeah. Right. Because it came, it went, came and went so painlessly that you just would well, it didn't interrupt the movie at all. The flow of the movie's going and you don't even remember the exposition scene. That's actually a good exposition scene because you don't draw attention to it, you know, and that's something I've, you know, I've, I really appreciate it now and I'm much more sensitive to it now. So, I mean, with my students, I'm terrible with that. Like, I'm like, fix your exposition, fix your exposition, you know? What do you think about the other side of the coin where uh, a movie that's widely considered to be a classic or critically acclaimed, like, maybe critically acclaimed is the wrong word, but I'm thinking of Jurassic Park, where one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the exposition dump. They're like, everyone sit on this ride, and we're going to play a movie within the movie that is the exposition. Here's how we made the dinosaurs. Well, that's, that's another way to do it. And I love that one, too, uh, because it's entertaining in itself. You know, like it's, it's got its beginning, it's got a beginning, middle, and end. It's like telling a little story within a story. Um, so even though it's drawing attention to itself, uh, it's thoroughly entertaining. You know, so again, you're not interrupting the flow just to talk. You know, like that's another way to sort of do it is make the, inter- in the exposition so entertaining that you remember it because they had a little cartoon, so it was very visual and all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, I appreciate that too, you know, because uh, you know, I'm trying to imagine how you would write that, yeah, you know, and get it across. And, you know, it's a hard thing to do. It really is. I mean, you know, sometimes in, you know, Lord of the Rings, you can do a little prologue, 
Yeah. That tells you the exposition. Well, like the Star Wars opening crawl. Yeah. You know, and you can get a little bit of that out there. Um, but again, you got to piece it through as you're going through. you got to pace it. you got to put the exposition where it's going to be most memorable, uh, where it's most useful. You know, occasionally you got to hold things back. So it's, a, it's, it's one of the most difficult skills in screenwriting. And it's something that I don't think gets paid enough attention to. You know, because we're all talking about plot and character and theme and, you know, all the cool really action scenes or the cool dramatic scene. And that's all good. But that, you know, that technical structural side of it of having to do exposition, uh, it's like an undervalued art. And, you know, there's, you know, movies that, you know, aren't necessarily great movies, but sometimes they have really good exposition. You know so it's, so, it's something you sort of grown to notice. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of hyper aware of it now. Yeah, just because of you know that scarring experience of having to do that, and uh, you know having to get that across. Um, so I think there's, you know, and also the other thing it, it that process taught me um, was about you know how to solve plot problems, or how to you know because you have a little problem you got to solve, and the thing is, um, you know, you have these incredibly detailed beat sheets that you have to construct before you write. Beat sheets. Well, it's like a, um, it's like, like a the summary beats of the you movie. have to hit. Yeah, all the beats you have to hit right. in the movie, and they're they're pretty detailed. You know, It'd be like you know five pages of beats. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and they're pretty detailed. Everything that happens in the scene, pretty much all the scene turns, you know, any special notes, and that has to get approved up and down the chain of command. You know, Vancouver, L.A., Sci-Fi, L.A., back to Vancouver here, and so it's been totally approved. So you can't change it. You know, you can't say, well, this beat doesn't work. It's like too bad. That's the beat. Um, but there'll be problems in those beats and you have to solve them and they don't tell you how to solve them, you know? And, uh, one, one of the best insights I ever came up with, like that my friend of mine, my friend Dave was writing one on his own. This is after I was done. He was writing one himself and he got sick for a few days, like very sick that he couldn't write. Like they actually had to, you know, put him on morphine for a couple of days. It was a, you know, kind of a bad thing. Uh, he's fine, but it was kind of a bad thing for that. So he literally, that was the only thing that could stop him from writing was morphine. And so he, you know, phoned me and said, you know, uh, can you sub in for a couple of days while I'm doing this? And I'm like, no problem. I'll sub in. And uh, it was like act four, act five. And, uh, and so, you know, there's a thing in the, in act four, end of act four, the hero, um, like they go to visit this eccentric billionaire who knows why the world is going to be destroyed, which I won't go into because it's a big complicated thing, but the world's going to be destroyed. This eccentric billionaire knows why this internet billionaire, they go visit him. He's kind of drunk, but they get the exposition out of him. And, uh, then they go down an elevator and there at the bottom of the elevator leaving is the CIA who are the bad guys. These rogue CIA agents are the bad guys in the movie and they kidnap the hero's son and they take him hostage. Now the problem was... The hero is always a hero. You do not have three-dimensional characters in these things. You got two-dimensional characters. The hero is always a hero. You take his son, you put a gun to his son's head, he's either going to fight you or chase you or surrender. However, act was running along, no fight scene. Act was running over budget, no chase scene. So I'm stuck with he'll never give up his son. But he has to because in Act 5 he's on the road going somewhere else. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, how, how do I do this? And I got you know, till five o'clock to do this, I got to do it. And, uh, I finally came up with this idea. And so the son goes down to pick up, get their, the pickup, uh, cause they're all manly men and they have pickups. So he gets the pickup, he comes in. So they come down the elevator with the, with the eccentric billionaire and his assistant. 
and they come down, elevator door opens, there's the, the CIA agent, gun to the son's head, just give up. And the guy's about to give himself up. He's going to do it because he's a hero. And the eccentric billionaire grabs and drags him back in the elevator, hits a button, and the elevator starts rocketing down into the earth, which you can fake in an elevator. And he says, come on, let's go. i got a secret exit out of here. And someone in there, in the, the assistant goes, what, a secret exit? Why do you have a secret exit? And he says, I'm an eccentric billionaire. <laughs> and I realized eccentric billionaire solves every plot problem. It solves them all. Because in Act 5, they have to deliver the ransom message. This right. is just making me think of Jurassic Park. Again. Well, exactly. Well, it's kind of the Bruce. I, I guess Crichton is, uh, come to think of it, a disaster writer. Well, he is in, in yeah. a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so it's like the Bruce Wayne solution, right? So you have an eccentric billionaire. You can solve any. So then Act 5, same thing. They have the CIA the... repellent spray. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. <laughs> so the, no, I'm picturing that in the film or in the TV show. But in Act 5, they got to deliver the ransom message. But worldwide communications are gone. That happened in the teaser. No landlines, no cell phones, nothing. How do they find this guy? Well, they go to a private airport to get the plane to Brazil where the machine that can save the world is, and there was someone waiting for them, and they got an iPad with the message on it because we had a deal with Apple. We could use an iPad. And they say, how did you find me? And she throws a copy of the eccentric billionaire's um, book in front of her, autobiography, and says, I read your autobiography, and you had this airport. So I'm like, eccentric billionaire solves every plot problem. And my favorite part of that is the guy they hired to be the eccentric billionaire um, was uh, Christopher Lloyd. Revolver is a new weekly show on the Cave Goblin Network, exclusive to Patreon backers of just $1 or more. Each series lasts for a maximum of 12 episodes, then switches hosts and premises. Series 3 is Second Bananas, a show about figures past and present who stand in someone else's much larger shadow. Join me, Craig Blanchard. Me, Joe Stilwell. And me, Wes Walcott as we meet history's greatest Garfunkels. Only at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Oh my god. Oh really? my god. I know, really? Yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> who's great at it? Who's the best at exposition there is, right? So, uh, and so my friend actually went onto the set. I don't even get a credit on this movie because my friend gets the credit because I just subbed in, which is fine. Uh, and so my friend sent me a picture from the set of him with his arm around Christopher Lloyd. And Christopher Lloyd had just filmed his, filmed his death scene, so he's like covered in blood. And they're both smiling. And I'm like, well, that was, that was, that was very satisfying. <laughs> I got a satisfying little moment out of that. So, you know, so there, you know, you had good things in it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Which one was that? That was, uh, what was that called? I think that was called Zodiac. It wasn't, one on, it wasn't on my MDB because it, it, my friend gets credit. I think they called it Zodiac. It was called Zodiac at the time. Right. You never know if these titles are going to change. And obviously it's different from the, the Gyllenhaal yeah. Zodiac. Yes. <laughs> yes. Completely, you'd be really dis- you'd be really surprised and disappointed probably if you were going for the Gyllenhaal Zodiac and tuned into that one. Uh, they might have changed the title. I don't know. Sometimes the titles stay the same. Like the last one I wrote, at least for this company in in Vancouver and LA, uh, was called. I'm not kidding. You probably saw it in the in IMDb. It was called Independence Hyphen Disaster. <laughs> like. And I, I, you know, I got the contract for this thing, and it's like that has to be a working title. It has to be a working title, but it was not. It was just. Like, they worked backwards from the title as well. Yep. They well, they they wanted to do their one million dollar version of Independence Day. Were aliens involved? Yep. There were aliens. There was the president. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Like it was just very, very Independence Day. Right down to like they had to do a big Independence Day type speech. And you know everything, and it was. <laughs> did did you manage to get Jeff Goldblum for that one? Well, it would would have been nice, uh, would have been nice, but uh, no, we didn't. But 
it was, you know, I don't, and see, the thing is, the only one I've ever seen, actually seen, uh, is Snowmageddon. I haven't seen any of the others. I've seen clips from them. Right. But I've never seen any of the others. I just, and the only reason I saw Snowmageddon is, is I showed it to my students once. And, uh, you know, just so they could mock me, pretty much. Um, and it was, oh, it was, another painful memory just came back. So, <laughs> so when we're doing Snowmageddon, I'm working with this producer down in L.A. directly uh, for the first part of it. And he's just feeding me plot points. And I'm writing the beachy. And the outline. I wish I was writing the script, actually. I was going straight from plot points to script. And, you know, we wrote the first three acts. And then he's like, what are we going to do now? I'm like, I don't know, dude, your story. But, and then we had to figure something out from there. But then, uh, but he was naming the characters. And it was this family, you know, uh, dealing with this, you know, this haunted snow globe that's going to destroy the world. Um, and so he named everybody. And he named the kid, this nerdy kid who loves to play Dungeons and Dragons, he named him Rudy, which is my name. Yeah. So I'm like, they're going to change these names. They always change the names. So I don't even think about it. Right, because you know I'm writing so fast too. Like I'm just, you know, I got no time to think about anything. So I'm just assuming they're going to cut this guy. That they're going to change the name, and uh, but I still embarrassed, so I use it as little as possible in the script. So I don't want people shouting Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. And so when I finally saw it with my students, not only did they not change the name, they kept the name Rudy. Uh, The first time he appears on screen is under my screen credit, right? So screenplay by Rudy Thaberger, and there's the kid playing some Dungeons and Dragons game. And they used, and because of the script had been written, rewritten a bunch of times after I left, they used his name so many times in this thing. Like I was joking with the students beforehand, you can do it as a drinking game, how many times they, sh- they say Rudy. And it's like they would have died of alcohol poisoning. It was just so painful. And so like now, because now I'm the jerk who names a character after himself. You know, like, well, at least it's a, a little kid and well, not yeah. like the hero. Well, exactly. Or something. Exactly. But it's just so it was just like, oh, God, you got to be kidding me. But it's like everyone was in a hurry. And I guess they maybe they even intended to change it. And then everyone just didn't. And this thing slipped through. And now it's people shouting, Rudy, 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 for this whole last half of the movie. That's all they're shouting. And I'm like, oh, God, this is, you know, <laughs> this is terrible. But, uh, you know, and again, it was the number one one before, you know, Sharknado came along. So there I am. It's my it's my 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 biggest credit <laughs> anything I've got. So outside of the uh, the films in the genre you've worked on, what are some of your favorites? Um, in in the sort of disaster movie ones. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've seen you know, like they all kind of blend together. Yeah. A bit because of that formula, I guess. Well, yeah, and uh, you know, I remember we went, went to a party a couple of years ago and we were we were watching them. And I think there was one called Mongolian Deathworm or something like that, uh, which, you know, just from the title. And it was actually, like, I rec- when I saw the credits, I recognized a lot of the names. So it's a lot of the same people. But, uh, yeah, see, and, and that one was fun because it was fun to make fun of. Right. Right, you know, because it was the Mongolian Deathworm and there's, you know, uh, all these white guys who are in there and, you know, heroes who are in there and the only people who are getting eaten by the worms are mostly Mongolians, which is, you know, <laughs> a little bit questionable. But, uh, you know, so they're fun to make fun of. Um, but, uh, it, you know, what it's made me do, like, is appreciate things like things like Jurassic Park, but also makes me appreciate things like, you know, action movies and right. things like that. Because um, even a bad action movie is hard to do. You know, like, you know, if you look at, you know, like Die Hard's amazing and Die Hard's great. But if you look at some of the weaker diehards that people didn't like as much, 
you know, if you go through them, they're still really hard to write because, you know, you, you know, writing to a formula is hard and, you know, harder than you might think because you got to write to a formula and make it look like you're not writing to a formula. Yeah. So in an action movie, every 10 minutes, you need an action scene or every 20 minutes, whatever it is. And between those, you have to move the story plot forward. You got maybe a, a A plot and a B plot and a C plot. You got to move those all forward. Plus, you got to do whatever exposition you got to do. Plus, you got plot twists. Like if it's a diehard movie, you know this guy seems to be doing this, but he's really doing that. And you got to get all that across efficiently, without any sort of like hiccups or bumps. You know. So when I see it done really well, like you know, one of the best examples is uh, Winter Soldier like that Captain America Winter Soldier movie, it is so efficient, you know, and, you know, Marmula, Marvel's a formula and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I love those movies because I'm a nerd, but, you know, it's, you know, I understand it's very formulaic, but if you look at that movie, it's so efficient, right? The story continuously moves forward. They have really clever ways to get the exposition. Even if you don't know Captain America's origin, you can watch that film and know what's going on because they have a scene where he goes and visits the museum dedicated to himself. Yeah. You know, and you get his origins. Didn't even think of that as a as a vehicle for exposition. Yeah, exactly. See, that's what I mean. Like, because yeah. it was a character moment. He's visiting the museum for a character reason because he's feeling lost in time and it's a way for him to get back, you know, reconnect. So it's a character moment, but they just painlessly put the exposition in there. So if you don't know who Captain America is, there's your, there's your exposition, you know, and everything moves forward efficiently. And I just came out of that going, wow, you know, and I, you know, if I'd seen that movie when I was, you know, 20 years old and wanting to just do indie films and all that kind of stuff, I would have probably looked down on it. And now, you know, many, many years later, I'm like, wow, there's something really, there's really a lot of craft involved in that. Well, speak, speaking of those Marvel movies, I actually think that the first two Captain Americas are the least like all the rest of the yeah. the Marvel movies. They're like actually standalone pieces of cinema. Like the first one is a lot, I think it's supposed to be, referential to all those pulp movies from yeah. the 50s and 60s yeah, yeah which is cool so. yeah and you know and then i think both those like you know directors you know i can't remember the name of the first one offhand but you know the rooster brothers in the second one you know they're you know they were filmmakers before they were marvel filmmakers yeah and they were able to bring their sensibility into that you know and you see that with the better ones you know someone's able to bring in an outside sensibility so, you know, to some degree, it's not as formulaic as people think it is. Um, but, you know, when, when they're, you know, when they're not up to that level, yeah, they're pretty formulaic. Uh, but even then, the formula is hard. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I've, you know, it's gotten, I've gotten weirdly to respect writers who can do that now, you know, in action movies when, you know, I didn't like it before. So it's, it is kind of an educational, you know, experience in that way. I'll definitely be looking at it. A different way yeah. i know i was like almost offended by how bad die hard 5 was but, well yeah you know maybe i'll give it another chance yeah yeah i know yeah i'll see I, you know it's like i don't necessarily you know it's, it's one of those things where it's like if the movie's bad is the movie still bad and i don't like it yeah but you know uh i just you know kind of bristle when people say well they weren't even trying and i'm like you have no idea like they were trying really hard they were just not able to make a good movie but everyone involved in that movie was trying really hard, you know, because, you know, the technical stuff they had to do and that, you know, that bar they had to reach is so difficult to reach. So even though it's not necessarily a good movie, it was still hard to do, you know. So I, I've become much more, you know, forgiving of 
that when people say, you know, I mean, I still, you know, there are people, filmmakers who still get lazy and things like that, but the process of making the movie is still hard. Like, was still incredibly hard to do, you know, and there's, yeah. you know, I respect that process a lot more. So you, you mentioned briefly um, your teaching. Yeah. Um, I assume you teach screenwriting? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm at the Vancouver Film School, and uh, they, there's, a, there's a writing program that I teach in, and I also teach in the film production program. Um, so on the one hand, I'm teaching, you know, how to write a, you know, how to write a feature, or, you know, how to write you know, short films or whatever. Um, also, we also have a gaming stream, so I, you know, write, I teach a bit in that stream as well. And then on the feature film side, or on the film production side, we do short films and they actually get produced. So you get to, you know, get writers on board, like, you know, shepherd scripts and develop script, but you also get to, you know, see them go into production and, you know, sort of shepherd that through. So, you know, I've learned a lot about the production end of it as well because of that. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's always, you know, it's always a sign of a good course if I learn a lot from it. Right. You know, like, it's always my definition of a good course. You know, like, it's like, I learned a lot from that course, which seems weird that I, you know, I feel bad that I'm While you were teaching. teaching it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we had a course, we have a course in the writing program uh, called The Second Act, which I co-teach with uh, another teacher named Brian Casilio. And, uh, and, you know, we just needed, you know, they needed some extra courses and the head of the department, uh, uh, Michael Baser, who's, uh, who's a very smart guy, but, you know, a little bit nuts. And, uh. He basically told us, you know, make a second act course like that. And that was all he told us. So, you know, we'd written a lot of second acts and we'd been, we're both story editors. So we'd story edited a lot of second acts. We never really thought about it. There's no first act course or third act course because second acts are really hard. Second acts, the middle of the movie is where it mostly goes wrong or where you're trying to fix the movie, you know. Um, and there, and second acts are much more unique. Even if you're doing writing a formulaic movie, you have to almost like reinvent the second act every single time. So it was a course that we had to really concentrate and figure out the second act. Um, and what was interesting that we found out, because, you know, uh, writers are kind of inherently lazy, and we figured when we got our, you know, make the second act course command, that we just look at all the screenwriting books and cobble together what they did, and, you know, it would be fine. And most of the screenwriting books actually dance around the second act. They don't really deal with it. So we had to figure it out on our own. And every time I teach that course, you know, I'm teaching it like right now in this term, every time I teach that course, I actually learn something new about the second act, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm teaching an adaptation course now that I inherited from another instructor uh, because I've done some adaptation and... As in like book to film? Yeah, book to film or play to film or even like real life story to film, you know, something like that. And I learn something new about adaptation every time I teach that course. You know, so for me, it's like, you know, at a certain point, I'm assuming I might get bored with teaching or I might get burned out, but it's not, ha it hasn't happened yet. I've been doing it about 15 years and it hasn't happened yet because I keep learning something new and it's, you know, it feels like a cliche to say it, but it's so true. You know, like I just, every time it's like, I get some new insight about, you know, what, what's important in adaptation, what isn't, and you know, like what works and what doesn't and same with the second act. And, you know, now when I work on my own stuff, I can Im implement all that. You know, I can hear my voice in my head when I'm about to make a mistake that students make a million times and I'm about to make the same mistake. It's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. So I have to figure out a new way to do that. So it's, you know, in that way, at least so far, uh, it's been a very, because I only teach about half time. Right. Right. So it's, you know, uh, so I still have plenty of time for writing and story editing and doing freelance stuff. 
Um, but that, you know, that's, it's not a drag going to work. You know, I mean, you have good weeks and bad weeks or good terms and bad terms. But on the whole, I'm pretty enthusiastic about going because it's like, well, I get to, someone's going to throw something at me that I've never seen before. And I got to figure out a way to solve it. I've always, well, I mean, this is quite an obvious thing to say, but uh, I've always thought the best teachers I've had were the ones who were actually willing to learn and trying to learn while they were teaching. It's, yeah. the, it's the the teachers who have decided they know the way that are uh, an issue. Yeah. yeah, well, you get you get that. Um, you get teachers like that. You also get, like, a lot of times you get story editors like that who are, like, bulldozers. Yeah. Right? It's, this is how you fix your movie. You know, which is, to me, the exact opposite of what you should be doing. If you're a story editor or a script consultant or just trying to, some, to help someone with their project, you know, you don't say, this is the way, this is my version of the movie, make it, and it'll succeed. Uh, what you should be doing is saying, well, what do you want to do? You know, what, is, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? You know, and that's, if I'm ever story editing someone, that's the very first thing I ask them. You know, what are you trying to do? What do you want to say? And I use that as sort of the template for everything else, right? Because it's like, well, you know, this scene isn't working because it's not doing what you said you want it to do, as opposed to me saying, fix it this way or fix it that way. And it just, it just seems like, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, my friend, again, my friend Brian and I, you know, we've sort of developed screenwriting or story editing rules over the years. And, you know, rule number one is it's not about you. Yeah. Right. If I'm the story editor, it's not about me. It's not about what I want in the story. You know, I've story edited projects where it's like, well, I would never write this. This is not my thing. I might watch it, but I'd never write it. It's not my thing. But I'll story edit it because I know what they're trying to do, and I'm going to help them do what they want to do. So that's like rule number one. It's like it's not about you. And like rule number 1A uh, is it's never about you, which, believe it or not, is harder. Yeah. Because that's when, you know, you're trying to solve problems, and sometimes you're in a room with like a writer and a director and a producer and a couple other people, and you come up with this great idea to solve the problem, and everybody goes, oh, man, you're a genius, and it's great. But then about a half hour later, you're working through the idea, and you realize, you know, dominoes are falling, and down the road, it's going to ruin something. And you realize it's actually a bad idea. And you can feel the room turning against it, and you have to dump your great idea. You have to go, like, well, it was a genius idea half an hour ago, but now it's a bad idea. Let's dump it. You know, I can't let my ego get in the way and say, no, but I was such a genius half an hour ago. Why don't you love me anymore? And it's like, well, you know, because the idea was a bad idea. It just didn't work. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Now it doesn't, and you got to dump it. You just got to take your ego out of the whole thing. And you got to do that, try to do that as a teacher too. Like take your ego out of it. But for me, that's the enjoyable part of it is not having my ego on the line, not having to sort of, you know, say this, you know, do this, do that, do this, do that. It's like, try this, try that. If that doesn't work, try something else. What do you want to do? You know, have that conversation. It's way better, you know, because you go into, you know, like I've had, you know, sometimes where, you know, things have gone wrong in the rest of my life and I've been feeling terrible. And I go into work to teach. And because I'm setting my ego aside, it's almost like I'm setting everything aside. And I focus exclusively on, you know, a student or a client or whatever I'm doing. And I come out of that and it's almost like I feel better. Because I've had a break from all the bad stuff in my life because I put my ego aside and my problems aside. And just, it's very therapeutic in a weird way, you know. And it's, you know, so it's it's something so far I haven't burned out on. I know a lot of teachers do get burned out. Um, but so far, you know, it's been fine. Cool. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned briefly in their uh, short films. Yeah. Tell me about Goalie. 
Uh, well, goalie, yeah, goalie was this sort of, yeah, a long time ago. Uh, um, you know, I was, I was living with my ex, and uh, and she was going away for the weekend. Uh, it was like Thanksgiving or something, and I wasn't going home that weekend because my family was doing Thanksgiving on a different weekend because of you know scheduling stuff. And all my friends are doing Thanksgiving stuff. So I was basically on my own for the weekend. And uh, and my ex, as she left, she said, oh, I forgot to tell you, here's a short story contest. And the deadline is Monday. Here you go. And it's like Friday. And she's like, bye. And uh, I was like, all right, fine. I got nothing else to do. And I wrote this short story, Goalie. And, uh, and you know, I, my brother's a goalie. And I talked to him a few times on the phone to get inside information and things like that. And entered the contest and it won. And so I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Because the only thing I'd had published before that was like a, an article in like Dragon Magazine, uh, you know, for a, a Dungeons and Dragons article, right? And, uh, and it won. And then it got published in a book of hockey stories. And then it got republished and republished and republished. And it's been one of the most reprinted short stories, and especially hockey. And, you know, my friend's kids have been forced to read it in junior high school and things like that. And then, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Dan Nearing, he's a, you know, writer and a director and things like that. And, and he's one of my oldest friends. I've known him since like grade three. And he directed my second feature that we co-wrote together called Chicago Heights. And uh, he just wanted to do a short film. And, you know, he had some money. He lives out in Chicago and he had some money. And, and he decided, you know, why don't we adapt Goalie? And I was like, all right, sure, let's adapt Goalie. And, and, uh, and he decided to do an adaptation of it. Um, and what was most interesting to me about that uh, was that the the kid in there is not an actor. The kid in, in playing the goalie, the hockey goalie, is not an actor. He's a goalie. And in fact, he's one of the top, like, prospects. Uh, you know, at least he was at the time, like, one of the top junior prospects. Like, he was a goalie on the way up. And his dad played his dad. You know, and in the in the short story, the, the, the goalie and the dad have a very estranged relationship. They're, you know, the dad can't figure the guy out. And same in the movie, but in real life, they have, you know, the father and son have a really, really close relationship. Um, but it was really interesting seeing that. Like, neither of them are actors. And what was most interesting for me is, like, the guy just looked like a goalie. You know, right. Like, you know, when he practiced, when he exercised, when, you know, on the ice, he just was, you know. And just even, a couple of knee braces. Well, yeah. Well, and also, like, even the calluses he had were goalie calluses, right? You know, like, on his feet and his hands and things like that. And it was like... You know, just sort of lent this this aura of authenticity to the whole thing that you know that we just couldn't ex- you know didn't expect you know, and it just you know it's kind of elevated the whole thing. So it ended up being I didn't even have to do much writing for that. It was more like you know he just took the the story as voiceover because it's a very imagistic story. It doesn't really have a plot to it, and he just sort of took the voiceover and just we talked about all imagery he could use and things he could do, and there wasn't really a I don't think it was ever really a formal script for it. It was just, you know, me talking to the director and, you know, throwing ideas back and forth and then him talking to the actors or, you know, what they could do and, you know, what he could shoot on ice. And and uh, it looks great. Like it's, you know, it's, you know, mostly black and white. And uh, the cinematographer, like my friend teaches at a film school outside of Chicago. And the, cinema, the cinematography instructor is the guy who shot the film. Uh, and he's brilliant. Right, so it's just it's such a beautiful looking film. It's shot on like digital video, but it's you know just gorgeous looking. So I was very happy with it. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming and talking yeah. to me today, Rudy. Yeah, no problem. 
Is there anything you'd like to plug? Where can people follow you? Um, well, I don't know. I'm on Twitter. <laughs> That's about it. I think at, at the original name of at Rudy Thaurier. But uh, other than that, yeah, I've got you know things in the works, but nothing really uh, that I can talk about yet. But, uh, but yeah, this has been enjoyable. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Van X Van. You can find me on Twitter at Doug Vandelay and the show at Van X Vancast. If you enjoyed the show please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser or iTunes. It's the best way for us to grow at no cost to you. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cavegoblins. I'm Doug Vandelay. See you next time. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.